This is the reality that we're celebrating today, that he rose. It's, uh, I think, arguably the most significant event in history. I think I said that on Good Friday as well in regards to his death, but it comes as a package. His death and his resurrection, the most significant event in history. And that's what we're celebrating this weekend. It's what lies at the very heart of everything we believe. In a a sense, we celebrate it every weekend because the whole of Christianity hangs off the events of Easter. Um, If you've got 1 Corinthians uh, 15 open in front of you there, have a look at verses 3 and 4 because that reminds us of what lies at the very heart. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to come up on the screen as well. But follow it in your Bible. Look what it says there. Two things, really. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. This is the event that we're celebrating. And when Paul writes these words, he's writing them to people who have already come to believe in this, but he knows they need to be reminded again and again and again. And maybe you've been a Christian for many years Be reminded today, let it go deeper today, celebrate these two things, that Christ died for your sins and that he rose again. Now, it's according to the scriptures, meaning this was prophesied a thousand years, even more than that earlier, that the Messiah would come and do these things. What Jesus did on this weekend is to fulfill the very words of God. I'd say it's the most significant events in history because it radically changed the world. Um, The world has never been the same since. It radically changed the world because it radically changed individuals who came to put their trust in this gospel. And if you're a Christian, I want to call you to always keep your trust in this gospel. Look at verse 2. Paul says there... Oh, there it comes. It's a fancy little transition. We got there. By this gospel, you are saved. By simply putting your trust in those two things we just looked at, that is how you get saved. But look at the next line. It's, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, the Apostle Paul says. So this is not just believe it once when you're young and then get on with your life. This is something to believe in and something to hold firm to for all of your days. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. And maybe you're someone who a long time ago came to belief, but things have been different for you for the last bunch of years. And if you're to be completely honest, you've been drifting. That belief long ago is actually in vain if you don't hold on to this. And maybe you've got friends or maybe you've got family members who used to believe and now they don't claim to believe and you're concerned for them that they believed in vain. That concern is right. There's nothing more important than a person coming to put their trust in the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, how do you test the significance of an event anyway? Here I am saying the death and resurrection is the most significant event in history. How do you test something significant? I want to suggest you do what Paul does here and this is what we're going to do. You simply ask the question, well, let's play out the scenario if it didn't happen. Yep. So today, particularly, we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. A dead guy, three days later, comes back to life. Now, as you can imagine, over the last couple of thousand years, there's been plenty of sceptics who have said, yeah, maybe the life and the death, but the resurrection? Not so sure about that. 
So why don't we play out the scenario of Jesus never rising from the dead? And I say that because that's exactly what Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, let's ask the question, what if, what if it never, ha- never happened? What kind of a difference would it make to Christianity? What would be changed? And here, Paul plays out the scenario. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, how would things be different? Now, I mentioned before there's always been um, sceptics about the resurrection of Jesus. And there were sceptics right back in the moment as well, believe it or not. One of the most popular thoughts was that the disciples came and stole Jesus' body out of the tomb. And that one hung around for quite a while. In fact, it still exists today. It's called the swoon theory. Maybe someone later can tell me why it's called the swoon theory. But the disciples came and stole Jesus' body. Now, how likely is it that the disciples could have done that? You might think, oh, yeah, sure, they could have done that. But when you look into the details of the event... It's highly unlikely. If those disciples, if you know anything about what the disciples were like, they were pretty fickle. They didn't always have a plan. So for the disciples to pull off stealing the body of Jesus and for the body of Jesus to never have been produced, never have been discovered by the authorities who were trying to prove that that happened, highly unlikely. The body of Jesus was never found. Those disciples themselves were scared, locked behind doors while Jesus was hanging on the cross. How do scared disciples all of a sudden get the confidence to go out and pinch the body? And particularly pinch the body from a tomb that had been guarded by a whole you know, set of soldiers who knew how to do this well and actually their lives are on the line if anything went down. And there was a rock in front of the tomb with a Roman seal on it. The disciples, it's highly unlikely they could have pulled that off. And even if they did pull it off, and it's the biggest fabrication in all of history, I'll tell you what's really, really unusual that the ones who pulled it off and made up the lie then all believed the lie and went to their deaths to promote the lie. Because all the disciples believed this so solidly that they suffered and died for this fact of the resurrection. I think it's highly unlikely that anything like that happened. I think the most possible explanation, and maybe you're a sceptic here today, I think the most likely explanation is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And something miraculous happened in this moment. But let's test the scenario. How would Christianity be affected if Jesus was not raised from the dead? Paul gives us four big things which are pretty bleak for Christianity. We're going to look at those four big things and then we're going to flip them. Does that make sense? So here's the four big things. If you read on through Um, The rest of chapter 15, you can pop them up there now, Sydney, for us. That's a fancy little slow transition, isn't it? All right, so here's the the deal with these four things. It's, It's pretty bleak. Number one, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then the gospel is false. And our preaching or our sharing of the gospel is useless. That's pretty heavy. Secondly, our faith is futile. In other words, it doesn't do anything. And we're still in our sins. Number three, Christians who have died are lost forever. They're no better off than anyone else who's died. Number four, we, that's Christians, should be pitied more than anyone else. They're the four main things the Apostle Paul says is the impact on Christians. That's a pretty significant impact. I say Christianity's over. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, who would believe in that? Who would put their trust in that? 
That's pretty bleak. But now what we're going to do is I'm going to get you to direct your attention to verse 20 in this passage. If you've got a Bible open in front of you, I don't think I have this as a verse there, Sydney. But look at verse 20. I'll read it to you. I'll find verse 20. There it is. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Yep. So Paul plays out the scenario and then he says, but here's the deal. It's a reality. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And if that's the case, then we need to flip all four of these around and state the positive of this negative. Are you with me? Because if he has been raised from the dead, then the very opposite of these things are true. And if the very opposite of these things are true, then we've got something to believe in. And we've got something to live for. And we've got something real that's changed us. And this is what lies at the heart of Christianity. So if you're new to these things today and you're like, yeah, what is with the resurrection? We're going to go through each of these one at a time and look at the brilliant reality that is true now because of the resurrection of Jesus. So let's do the first one. The gospel is false and preaching is useless unless, of course, Jesus did rise from the dead, in which case the gospel is true and sharing it is powerful. Amen? Amen. Friends, we don't believe in a fairy tale here or a fable. These are things that actually happened and there's verifiable evidence to back it up in history. If it wasn't, then believing in Jesus would be just like believing in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. But when was the last time you came across an intelligent thinking, reasonable thinking adult who came to put their trust in Santa Claus and came to believe in it? You don't see it. Well, I've never seen it. And if I did, I'd be encouraging them to go and chat to someone. But you know what you do see year after year after year? intelligent, reasonable, smart, responsible adults considering the evidence and coming to the most likely conclusion that Jesus really did rise from the dead and that it's true. And friends, I want to put to you, this is true what we believe in. It's not blind faith. People talk about faith as though it's this blind thing. Oh, we don't have much evidence. Just jump in and see if it works. No, no, no. Faith is to consider the evidence and come to the best, most intelligent possible conclusion. And if you've never really dug into the evidence, dig into it, and this is the best conclusion. The weight of the evidence verifies that the resurrection of Jesus is reliable and trustworthy. Add to that what we just read in verses 5 through to 8 about the eyewitnesses that saw Jesus when he was raised from the dead. Did you pick up that in the reading? If you didn't, look down. I hope you've got a Bible in front of you there. Look at verses 5 through to 8. And if you don't, just listen to me as I read it. Look at verse 5. It says, And that he, that's Jesus risen, and that he appeared to Kephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve... After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Now, there's some evidence. There were eyewitnesses, not just one or two, but a whole stack of eyewitnesses that saw Jesus alive again. First of all, you get Peter. Then you get all 12 of the disciples see him. And then you get 
this massive group, it says over 500 people. Now, that's a large gathering of disciples, likely happened in Jerusalem somewhere, and Jesus appears to a huge mob. Have you ever seen a huge mob of over 500 people have the same hallucination at the same time? They'd all have to be on the same magic mushroom. It's really highly unlikely, right? Over 500 people see Jesus. There's eyewitnesses that can verify it. And then he goes on and he... Oh, actually, it's interesting. When he says those 500 people, Paul is writing this letter at a time where a lot of those 500 people are still alive. So he's writing this letter to people to say, do you want to go and talk to someone who saw Jesus alive? Because a whole of them, whole stack of them are still living. Go and ask them. And they'll tell you they saw Jesus alive again. Then Jesus appears to James, then all the apostles, and he appears to Paul as well. So what you've got there with, with eyewitnesses and stacks of them is you've got public consensus and you've got public documentation. It's true. It's true. And because it's true, it can be powerful and effective in people's lives. You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel that Jesus died and rose again. I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes. This gospel that is true is powerful. And I actually want to trust that it's going to be powerful today. Not because my words are special or fancy or I've done anything fancy with the screen, but because these words about the news of what Jesus has done can come to people like you and I and can powerfully change us. So if you're sitting here and you're a bit sceptical today, can I actually just again say to you the gospel and I'm going to trust that this could change you. All right? Let me say it. Here's the gospel. Jesus died with your sin and he dealt with the punishment you deserve and he came back from the grave to show the victory over your sin and turn and offer you forgiveness and a new life in him. There's the gospel. I'm going to go and trust that that's powerful and effective and I'm not even going to be surprised if some of you here today actually caught that for the very first time, maybe. Maybe it's making sense for the first time because God's opening your eyes and ears to hear it and it's effective to change. I plead with you, trust that message. And I plead with you, those who already do trust in it, hold firmly to it all of your days. Never let go. Secondly, our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. Unless, of course, Jesus really did rise from the dead, in which case the opposite of that is true. Our faith works. We're freed from sin. Christians, our faith is a faith that works. It works on this level. It's not going to make everything in your life better, but it works to successfully solve your biggest issue. And whether you know it or not, your biggest issue is your sin. It's your rejection and your rebellion of God. And Paul says here, you know, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're still in our sins, which is the worst case scenario, to still be stuck in your sins. But as Jesus rose from the dead, he gave you a way out of your sins. 
It's almost like to be stuck in your sin is like one of those old-fashioned Western movies where you see someone tied to the railway tracks. We don't see that too much anymore. Back in my day, the West, you know, there's always a damsel in distress tied to the railway tracks until someone came to rescue her or him from the oncoming train. And the only way there could be rescue was for someone to come and remove the ropes and release the person. Otherwise, judgment is coming. Our faith works to release the ropes of sin, to get you off the tracks and to actually deal with your sin. And the resurrection is evidence that the cross worked. That's why it matters that Jesus showed himself to be alive again. Jesus died with your sin. He took it down into the grave and right there in the grave, he dealt with it. Your punishment is taken. The sacrifice is made and he rises again to show the victory. And if you're someone who comes to put your trust in that, you actually are now freed from your sin, which is a little bit of a mystery because Christians still struggle with the presence of sin and you will until the day you step into glory, but you're freed from sin in this way. You're freed from the penalty of sin and the power of sin over you. You're freed from the penalty of sin. I mean, you don't need to pay the penalty for your sin anymore. You don't actually need to bear the wrath of God that you deserve because someone else paid it for you. Someone else bore the wrath you deserve, and that's Jesus. So you get freed from the penalty, and you get freed from the power. You see, sin has power. And the Bible describes the power as like a slavery, meaning people are stuck in slavery to sin, but to be freed from the power of sin means you get free and able now to say no to sin. God comes to live in you by his Holy Spirit and he enables you to have the power to say no to what dishonours God and say yes to what honours him. That's an incredible freedom. That's the freedom the Spirit brings. And he frees us to serve him and honour him. You're no longer stuck in sin. And that's what I mean by our faith works. It works to free you from sin, restore you back into good relationship with God, the God who made you to be in relationship with him, the God who made us for himself and is worthy of all of the worship and all of the honour that you could give him by turning from sin and living a life that honours him. He's worthy of all of it. Our faith works. We've been freed from sin. Now the third one. Christians who have died are lost forever. Unless, of course, Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead. And then you can flip that one around. And the truth is this. We too will be raised to live again. If you've put your trust in Jesus, then just like Jesus, you too will be raised beyond the grave to live again. Did you notice the language in this passage? It, it kind of goes on. It talks about death as falling asleep for the Christian. Did you notice that? Because it's mentioned three times. If you read the whole chapter, it's there in verse 6, it's verse 18, and it's verse 20. Because here's the reality. Death, which is coming for every single one of us, Nothing more certain than that. Death for the Christian is described as falling asleep. Who here is scared of falling asleep? Unless you still believe in Freddy Krueger. 
right? Some of you are not old enough to know what that is. Falling asleep is not a scary thing. Yeah? You close your eyes for a short while, soon to be awakened again to everlasting life. Um, this life for the Christian is not all that we get. Yep, this is your life here, but there's more to come. There's much more to come. And when this life ends, it's like you fall asleep to be woken up again. That's the reality for the Christian. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul talks there about funerals and how we grieve and we mourn for when people die. And it's certainly the case that we still do grieve and mourn when Christians die, but we don't mourn and grieve without hope. We actually mourn and grieve with a certainty that we will see a Christian brother and sister again, that we will be together again because we will rise again. Just like Jesus rose, if you've put your trust in him, you will rise. Your heart will begin to beat again and it'll pump blood around your body again. Your lungs will begin to pump again and you'll breathe air again. You'll open your eyes and be able to see again and you'll get up and walk again and jump and you'll dance again and you'll dance with your brothers and sisters who have been brought to life again because we'll be together and we'll be looking at a God who's worthy of all of our dancing and singing we could ever give him and we'll be with him forever. That's the reality for the Christian. We too will be raised. I mean, verse 20, it says, but Christ is has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Jesus is the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep, meaning Jesus is just the first one to go ripe and fall off. But everyone else who's coming in his train, all those who believe in Jesus right through history, will too be the next fruits. You'll be the fruit that follows Jesus, the first fruit, to wake again after death. There's a long line to follow. All those who trust in Jesus will live again. That's an incredible reality. That's a reality to keep your eyes fixed on. And here's the fourth one, and we're going to finish on this one. That's pretty heavy. <clears throat> we should be pitied more than anyone. You know, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead... Christians should be pitied. In other words, the whole world ought to look at Christians and go, oh, look at them, the poor little things, believing in something that's not true. But if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then you go ahead and flip that one around. I don't know what kind of language you want to use. I use this one. We, that's Christians, are the most blessed, or you could say ought to be the most envied people on the planet. Because of what we've got. We shouldn't be pitied. What we believe is true. We ought to be envied by everyone. Not because when you become a Christian, everything just works swimmingly in this life. You know, That's not the case. We ought, we ought not be envied simply because Christians you know, get to avoid all the kinds of suffering and always have health and wealth and wisdom uh, don't believe that kind of version of the message. Blessed, when I say blessed, I mean for the Christian we get every spiritual blessing in Christ. 
If you've come to put your trust in Jesus, you get the very big questions that your heart asks all the way through your life, the big existential questions, you get the best answers for those questions. And you get to live life now knowing what this is all about. That's an incredible blessing. As well as everything else we've just mentioned there, the blessing of knowing what this one's all about. And the blessing of knowing where it's heading, I put it like this. Number one, if you're a Christian, you get to know where we came from. You get to know why we're here and you get to know where we are heading. And to get good answers to those three questions will bring peace and contentment and blessing in your life more than anything else. In fact, your heart will search for good answers to those three questions until you find them in God himself. And the answers that we get are this, because Jesus has been raised. We get to know where we came from. There is a God in heaven and he's good And out of his goodness, he poured out his love to create. And he makes humans as like his image bearers in creation. We're made by a good God and we live in our God's world. That's good to know. That's fundamentally good to know. Second, we we know why we're here. You know, if you know who made you, then you you pretty much know why you're here. We're here to know him and to honour him. That's what you exist for, to know the good God that made you and to live the kind of life that puts his glory, his honour, his majesty on display. That's what you exist for. And the only way to know him and honour him is actually through Jesus, by putting your trust in Jesus' death and resurrection. You get to fulfil your purpose, the same purpose that every human has. You get to fulfil it. And thirdly, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, we get to know where we're heading. We get to know that beyond this life, you you will be raised from the dead and you will live again forever. It is so good to know where we're heading. It's so good to have life now, but it's so good to know where this is going and that it's heading towards a wonderful place, the place we were created for. Friends, that's blessing. Right there in the answer to those three questions, there is assurance and security and contentment and peace and real blessing. Christians ought to be positively enviable. That's the position that we have. Because Jesus is alive, we got the truth, our faith works, sharing it is powerful. And we know we will be raised to live again. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your work through Jesus. We thank you for his death and his resurrection that brings us life. It takes our sin and enables us to know where the future's heading. Lord, for anyone here today who's hearing it for the first time, Lord, stir them, wake them up, that they would put their trust in this truth and know life in you, the life that we were created for. Amen. Amen. Amen.